0: Acts chapter number 2, we're going to start in verse number 36, verse number 36. Remember, we had started a couple weeks ago in chapter 2, verse number 1, where the Holy Spirit ignited the church, uh, really kind of lit that flame on fire. Uh, they were speaking in tongues, they were empowered there. And again, when, when tongues were spoken in the Bible, we got to remember that it was known dialects. It wasn't just some, you know, Babel or some heavenly language that no one can understand. And many of the people there, they were astounded, they were amazed, they were perplexed that these Galileans, these simple folk, were able to speak in their languages. A lot of different languages were present there at Pentecost, and and many of them were were mocking and making fun. Surely these guys are are drunk, and Peter, as he starts to preach to them, no, we're not drunk, we're just empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he had started the message, as we looked at last week in verse number 14, and one of the great things about messages or preaching is when you go to the Bible, and that's exactly what Peter did. He took them back to the Old Testament and told them that prophecy had been fulfilled, that the Messiah whom they had been waiting for had come and, it, and he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And the point he made was that Jesus is alive. He is God's son. In verse number 36, we continue the narrative this morning where it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, the Jesus that you know, the Jesus that you have seen, that you have witnessed some of his miracles. And honestly, we don't know how many were there at Pentecost. We know at least 3,000 were saved, but thousands were there. And I dare say many of the crowd that was there at Pentecost was also there the day that Jesus was crucified. So the Jesus you knew, that same Jesus whom ye crucified. Now, very poignant part of his sermon. Hey, you were the ones that crucified Jesus. He's just really putting it at them. Both Lord and Christ. God made him, both Lord and Christ. God made him a Messiah. And then we get to verse number 37, which is kind of the invitation or the decision time for this crowd. Now, when they heard this, look what it says. They're, they were pricked in their heart. What that mean, it means is that they were convicted. Anyone ever been under conviction? Anyone ever at all been under conviction? All right, uh, let me ask this. How many have ever been under conviction or deep conviction and you didn't really do anything about it? Anybody? All right, many of us. Uh, I've been there many times. You know, conviction isn't, a, isn't necessarily a fun thing to be under, right? I don't think many of us just like to be under conviction because it is convicting us of something in our heart and our life that needs to be fixed, needs to be taken care of. And this crowd realized the severity of of what Peter was saying, that the Jesus that they knew, the Jesus that they had crucified, is the Son of God, is the Messiah. And the message that Peter spoke to them convicted them so much. Verse number 37, And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, really all those that were gathered around Peter, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What are we going to do? Peter I need an answer. I, I, I don't know what to do. Again, the message that Peter had given them was so convicting that they wanted to do something about it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The decision that they made and really the application that we can make in our heart and our life as well. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the beautiful wedding that we were able to participate in yesterday. And I pray that you would be with Andrew and Jordan and the rest of their lives together. God, I pray that you'd be with us as a church family. Lord, it's a difficult time kind of trying to steer a church through a pandemic. But God, I pray that you'd help us all to stay faithful to you. Lord, especially during these difficult times, it is very easy for us to get discouraged. It's very easy for me to get discouraged when people aren't showing up, when people aren't here. And I, I understand there's, uh, people are trying to be cautious, people are scared, there's, there's fear, but God, you haven't given us a spirit of fear. And Lord, as we study the book of Acts, help us to realize that this church, even in the midst of all of the persecution that they were about to go through, they came alive. And Lord, that's what I want from our church. God, I want us to come alive, to not be so fearful about what might be happening in the world And help us to stay on mission, because a church that is not actively on mission is really not a church. Lord, you have called us here with a purpose. You've given us a mission, and and the church, as we've already learned, is an assembly. So if we are not assembling, then we are not actively participating as a church. So God, I pray that you'd be with our church family. Lord, I'm thankful that we can live stream, that people can watch whether they're at work or sick or dealing with situations. But God, I pray that you'd help people that can be here to come, take precautions as they need to. But I pray that you'd stir us, that you'd convict us, that you'd cause us to come alive. And Lord, we don't know when you're coming back. We know that that day is nearing with each passing day, but help us to realize that we have a mission. And our mission is not for ourselves. Our mission is not to stay secluded. Our mission is to advance your kingdom, to do what you have called us to do. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question as we start this morning. We'll throw this up there, this question. How do you make decisions? I'm just asking just in general. How do you make decisions? What? What? Quickly, all right, very good. So anybody need any money, just ask Justin. He will just throw it at you quickly, right? For Alan. Very slowly. So we got the separate answers there. Justin is quick, but Alan is slow. How else? How do you make decisions? Not all at once. Yes, Stephanie. Pro-con list, very good. I think my wife does that too, so. Yes, who else? Who else? Yes, Marcus. Pray, very good. We got one spiritual person. Amen. Very good. All right. He's a suck up to the uh, pastor. That's what. No. He's that. You know. He's that kid in, in school. Like you know. Give him the teaching. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Michael. Magic eight ball. The magic eight ball. What should I do today? Okay. I will wear my hair this way. Okay. No. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Logan. He needs miny, I like it. Is that? Is that about right? Does it work? For the most part. No. <laughs> Mom says no. Logan, 50% of the time. That's, that's good. 50% of the time. <coughs> Man, dying here. What else? How do we make decisions today? Anybody else? Based what? Off. what? What? Emily? Off. Coin sauce. All right, awesome. So you always got to have a coin in your purse or whatever. Okay. Mike? Based off facts and information. Based off facts and information. Tasha, why are you rolling your eyes? What's wrong with that? <laughs> She's like, oh, that house looks nice. It's condemned. I don't care. It looks nice. <laughs> Mike's like, here's the facts. Here's the information. We're not going to get this house. I was like, ah, it doesn't matter, right? No. Oh, OK, OK. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it's good. <laughs> it is. Sometimes. sometimes it's not. All right. I mean, My office not. will be open for like two minutes after this. <laughs> I don't have much time today. All right. How else? How do we make decisions? Anybody? Anybody else? Yes, you your wife <laughs> it's like I told you know, uh, Andrew yesterday You know, first you don't succeed just try doing it the way Jordan tells you everything will be fine Venetia right. yeah. yeah yeah exactly exactly what else anybody else one or two more how do we make decisions David you got anything Mike took mine I was going to say carefully and logically basically the same thing okay Carmen is that, is that you very, very long, drawn yeah, out. I, I'm extremely careful, so I don't jump in it Takes me. forever. Takes forever. I could tell you love it. <laughs> if you want a better answer, you should ask your pastor. Okay. Yeah. 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 Appreciate that. Um, all of us obviously have different ways that we make decisions. Uh, we have different thought process that goes into it. There's a researcher at Columbia University that found that you make upwards to 1.7 million decisions. Uh, over the course of a 70-year period, that's, that's that's a lot of decisions. Uh, John Maxwell once said, "Life is a matter of choices or decisions, and every choice you make makes you." You know, our decisions are important. You know, sometimes we make decisions that really seemingly aren't that important, but decisions are important. And really, what I'm asking today is the question because what they're coming to in this sermon is a decision time. We have heard the message. We have heard what Peter has preached. Now it's up to us to make a decision. Just like every time I get up here and share God's word, whether it be on a Sunday or a Wednesday, it comes to the point in the message where it is decision time, where we must make a decision. And I understand you must sometimes be logical and drawn out. But when it comes to God's word, when it comes to conviction, we don't need to push off things. We don't need to get so factual and logical about things that we don't act in the way that God wants us to act. But I've seen that many times in my life. Well, you know, I've done what Stephanie's done, have a pro-con list in, in some ways, to where I've got to have a pro-con list, God. I'm not really sure if this is what you want me to do. When God is clearly moving in a direction, I'm just not sure. We must be faithful to God. We must do what God has called us to do. But I want you to understand the significance, significance whatever that word is, significance of what is going on here at Pentecost thousands upon thousands were gathered here at Jerusalem together to witness this outpouring of the Spirit and really the dawning of the church age. And I dare say, this is important, that some 50 days prior, many of these people in the crowd probably witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Many people had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and many, I would dare say, were even those that had shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And now here they are, seven weeks later, and Peter, one of the disciples, gets up and preaches to them that, hey, that same Jesus that you crucified is alive. He is God's son. He is Messiah. And what he had preached, and he preached more than just that, but what he preached was so powerful and so convicting because the Holy Spirit was just drawing out his presence on the crowd that day. That the people, as it says in verse number 37, their hearts were pricked. They, they were so convicted. So convicted. I mean, it hit them deep. Wow. Wow. He's Messiah, he's Lord, Jesus is alive also you killed him. And Peter has aggressively basically told the men of Israel, men of Judea listen to my words, this is who Jesus is. This is what you have done to him. But Christ has opened up a door of possibility. But then verse number 37 at the end The crowd, basically, collectively, and I'm sure it's probably starting one by one, like, hey, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then they're crying out to Peter, hey, what shall we do? And he gives them an answer, and it's a simple answer. Verse number 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he gives them the clear steps of what they must do. First and foremost is repent. Repent of your sins. Come to Jesus and allow Jesus to save you. Look, understand this. Most of us that are in this room understand this, that salvation is a simple thing, is it not? It's a simple thing that we must do. There's not a lot of steps involved in it. Now, I want to go just a little deep in doctrine this morning in a couple of these verses. I don't want to go so deep. That's not what I'm trying to do in this series But there's a lot of people that take a lot of verses out of context. Honestly, there's been times in my life where I have heard something preached, I've read something, and I believe that. But then as I studied it myself, I realized it was out of context. And there's a lot of people that have led people astray from different passages. And this is one passage that people have been led astray. Because on the surface, stay with me here, on the surface in verse number 38 and verse 40, it almost gives the connotation of it saying something that it's not actually saying. Now, we have to understand that when the New Testament was written, it was written in Koine Greek, and it's been translated into countless languages. The language we have in front of us is the English translation of God's Word. So, I'm saying this, and I'm going to make my point in just a minute, but there are some times within a translation that words do not translate the way that they should. In verse number 38, it almost gives the idea that some people get led astray. I'm I'm saying this because I want you to understand this. Some people get led astray because it's almost an idea of baptismal regeneration. Basically that baptism is what saves you. But I'm here to say that baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. And I'm not trying to be controversial here, but baptism is not essential for salvation. It's not essential for salvation. If it was essential for salvation, then the thief that died on the cross with Jesus that basically asked Jesus to save him couldn't go to heaven, could he? Now, baptism is essential, but it is a mark. It's an identification. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago that in the Greek, the Greek word baptize is baptizo, which means there's two definitions, a figurative and a literal. Uh, uh, the, the literal is basically to submerge, to go under. The figurative is identifying with so what Peter is talking about here the baptism is not necessarily I it's not necessarily a requirement for salvation but it is an identification look anyone that has ever studied or spoken another language understand that there are things that do not translate well right I was asking brother Mike earlier and I'm sure Carmen would understand this too that there are words in English and Spanish that just don't translate right they're not the same. So but Mike, do you have just a maybe example or two of maybe words from the Spanish to English that just do not translate very well? Uh, Spanish to English, there's a word that, that was used a lot uh, growing up. It's called sobre mesa. And it literally means translated, it literally means over table, but what it what it really means is is the time after you're done eating where you sit around and talk. There's not an English word for that. In Spanish there's just one word, sobremesa. Okay. Uh, all say that together. I was going to give you one. <laughs> That's exactly what he said, right, Stephen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, from, from English to Spanish, I, I couldn't think of any, so I started learning a But it's just been so it, it just comes naturally that I didn't really think that there's not a translation. But one of the words that I thought was funny, there's not a word for in Spanish is toes, like toes on your feet. Uh, in Spanish, they're called. Uh, uh, fingers of the feet <laughs> alright we all got fingers of the feet alright awesome uh, he's got other examples that I'm sure even Stephen and Carmen could think of some as well but the, the fact the point I'm trying to make is that obviously we understand that you translate from one language to another it's not always going to translate I remember my dad uh, preaching in Costa Rica and he's preaching the message and then he got a translator there and, and they're saying things and half the time the translator's like uh, what are you saying I have no did it just go off is it on Okay, it's on. Um, Like, I have no clue what you're saying, and it was pretty funny. And I remember one of them was, uh, I think it was the word chariot. He was preaching about something that had to do with chariot. And from, I think what they understood, there was no word that translated for chariot. So they're basically saying car. Uh, Does that about sound right? So it's one of those things where, again, I'm just trying to help us understand that when we study God's word, we have to understand that it is a translation. So It's very easy to read into some things that aren't necessarily there. So again, what Peter is saying, he's not saying that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. He's saying that that follows, that accompanies your salvation. It's an identification. And the early church understood this. And I think some of us today don't understand the significance of baptism. Here's what I mean. That I don't think we place as much emphasis and importance as we should. What I mean is that there are many people that have been saved, scripturally saved, but have never been baptized for one reason or another. The early church, it was, hey, you get saved, then you're baptized because you're identifying yourself with that group of believers, with that assembly. And that's what should happen. But again, it doesn't save us. Now, go down to verse number 40 because I'm going to help us understand this and we'll make an application. But in verse number 40, it says, and with many other words, so Peter's preaching a lot of other things than what is just here. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So on surface, it can seem like Peter is saying that it's up to you to save yourself. But it's not, is it, Brother Allen? No. A better way to, I guess, translate this verse would be to, to, to say it to be saved, is what he's saying. You have to be saved. And the only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ, the Jesus that I just mentioned. Now, Christianity, what sets Christianity apart from all the religions is really a couple words. Do versus done. You see, Christianity is not something that we must do in order to inherit eternal life. It's not something we must do to necessarily get saved. Salvation has already been done for us. By the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, in the Greek, there's three voices Two verbs. There are two that are passive and one that is active. Active voice uh, describes something that I or you are doing, basically like this like I hit the ball or I painted my house, I, I built something. A passive voice describes something or an action that is done to me or for me. So Peter isn't saying that you have to save yourselves, but he's saying that you must be saved. And this verse is literally telling them that they can't save themselves from their own fate. You cannot earn it. Again, many religions equate your saving to something you have to do. But Christianity says there is nothing you can do to save yourselves because it has already been done by Jesus Christ. And salvation is a gift. The Bible says in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. It would be like someone doing something for you, and all you have to do is receive that gift. That's it. You know, I think, Lord willing, this week, uh, Justin's going to start working on a deck, right, for us at our house. So imagine he works on this deck and, and puts it together, and we have a beautiful deck, and I get back. We're actually going on vacation this afternoon. We're leaving, uh, so i got to jet out Lily, shortly after I, I preached this morning. But imagine I get back at the end of the week, and... And I look at that, and he's done an amazing job. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really like it. I'm not going to use it. I'm sure he'd be really happy. (laughs) You just look at that face. He'd be really happy. But I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to use it. And I never actually use it. I never go out there. I never step foot on it. My family doesn't use it. He's like, I built this for you. (laughs) I did this, you know, trying to help you out. I love you guys and and trying to help you. And And here it is. I know it's kind of a poor illustration, but... In the same sense, that's salvation. Jesus has already done the work. All we have to do is receive it. All we have to do is accept (coughs) the gift that he has given us. And it would be foolish for me to not accept such a great gift that was built for me, that was done for me. Same is true with salvation. And that's what Peter is trying to get across Titus 3, 5 says not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, Jesus saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. In verse 38, where he says, repent in the Greek, it is the word metano, which literally means a change of mind. So if you have notes and we got this first thing up here, I want you to understand this repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in action. Repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. Faith is trusting in the Lord. Repentance is turning from sin. It's not a two-step process. Stay with me. Listen, it's not cleaning up your life before you come to God. Because you can't clean up your life before you come to God. You come to God and then you allow God to clean up your life. And many people have this wrong. Well, I got, I got to clean up some things before I'm going to come to God. No, no, no. You come to God first and allow him to clean up your life. Yeah. Allow him to do the restoring. That's what it's all about. So repentance is a changing of mind, a, a turning from your sin. It's kind of, as some people describe a, a turning away from. So a 180, you're going this way and nope, I'm going this way now. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Really, a simple explanation is turn to God from your sin. Don't turn to God or don't turn from your sin to God. And it was the Spirit who pierced Peter's hearers to the heart so that in despair they cried out, What shall we do? Repent. Really, it's that easy. I think sometimes we make salvation more difficult. But it's not. Understand that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if you want to receive that gift of salvation, then repent of your sins and be saved. Believe on Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And since the goal of repentance is to reduce or remove the consequences of sin, Peter was calling the Jews who had witnessed the crucifixion and many who are part of the crowd cheering to publicly renounce their actions and identify with Christ. Verse number 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So Peter told them this promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all those who are afar off. Those far off refer to the Gentiles that Paul would preach to in Ephesians chapter 2. Look, look quickly there. Ephesians chapter 2. We've already hit on this in our Ephesians series. But Ephesians chapter 2, Paul references this. Verse number 12. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, then strangers and of covenants of no promise, and <clears throat> excuse me, having no hope without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain a new man, so making peace. So he's basically saying the same thing here that You were one time afar off and Peter is referencing in verse number 39 that salvation, this promise of salvation, this gift of the Holy Spirit is for all, not just for you that are present on this day at Pentecost, but for all and all of us that are here today should be thankful for that. That salvation wasn't just for those 3,000. Salvation has been made nigh or drawn nigh to us that are afar off. Thousands of years have passed and I'm thankful that salvation is still for me today and still for others today. The promise is for us today. You see, our sin is what put Jesus on the cross, just like it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. And with Peter's exhortation to be saved, this crowd that was so convicted did something about it. Verse number 41. Then they that gladly received his word. And and the thing we have to understand is in, in every sermon, in every service, there are people that gladly receive the word. That listen to what is being preached, that listen to be, what is being spoken, gladly receive it and do something about it. And then there are some that eh, I don't really care. You know, I'm here, I'm checking it off, I'm eh, whatever. But there that day they gladly received his word and were baptized in the same day, were added to them about three thousand souls. Three thousand people got saved on the day of Pentecost. What amazing an amazing thing to witness. I was talking a little bit about that with Nate this morning because he was asking me what I was preaching so I was trying to explain the story and man, 3,000 people got saved. 3,000? That's a lot. I'm like, yeah, it is. But what an awesome event to be a part of. You know, and the thing is, things like that can happen today. But we have to be so sensitive to the Spirit, and filled with the Spirit to even make that a possibility. You know, as I've already preached, you know, it's very important for us as a church to be ignited by the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to move us. And we're going to look a little bit more uh, in the next, uh, next passage as we look at verse 42 through 47. But this salvation wasn't just a one one time and that was it. And nobody else got saved. Once these people got saved, they were changed. Do you realize that? Their life wasn't the same, and the Bible tells us, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but the Bible tells us that really daily we're added to the church. That's what we need today. We need people actively on mission for God that daily people are being saved. But we have to do something. It's not enough just to hear the message. It's not enough to just be convicted. We must move beyond the conviction. And it leads back to that question back in 37, verse 37, where the crowd said, hey, what shall we do? They witnessed the resurrection. It's clear. They're saying, hey, I need something, but I don't know what I need. What must I do to get this? We've done this. We've talked to friends like, man, I know I need something, but I don't know what I need. (laughs) There's something, so help me. That's what they're they're saying to Peter here. And the thing about what Peter is doing, and I want you to understand this, he is not giving them a false hope. There are some today that give a false message, a false hope. He is giving them really a, a gospel assurance. You see, there's a philosophy today of that of relativism. What I mean is that, you know, truth is relative, that people look at things from a different perspective and, you know, really what I'm seeing here is that, you know, you know, for one person, that's right. For another person, that's right. But Peter is not saying that, you know what? You know, you do this, it might save you, but then next week you're going to, have to do something else. You know, you think about coronavirus. You know, we've had so much information in the past four months. People don't know what to believe, Right? And, and I'm not trying to discount it, but really a lot of the truth that we've been receiving is kind of a relative truth, which means it's, it seems like it's always changing. Well, if we do this for this month, it's going to help us. No, 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 I was wrong. So let's do this. But that's not what Peter's saying here, is he? Hey, you know, if, if you want to correct what, what is wrong in your life... Because they were so convicted, then, hey, why don't you try this? I don't know if it's going to work, but just try this. Is that what he's saying? No. He is giving them not just a relative hope. And get this down. Peter doesn't offer a crowd a relative hope. He gives them gospel assurance. And one of the saddest things about relativism of our day is that it undermines God's forgiveness. I want you to listen to what another preacher said about relativism. Relativism. He said, Relativism constantly minimizes or denies the absoluteness of God. It, It functions implicitly as if God had no clear or unchanging character, as if there were no divine measure for human character. Relativism does not get along well with biblical statements like, Be holy for I am holy, or be perfect as God your Father in heaven is perfect. So, relativism today minimizes the absoluteness of God and his will. But relativism maximizes the absoluteness of self. Listen to this. He says, it says that the way to healing and wholeness is to stop measuring yourself by external standards or expectations, even God's. Instead, without reference to God and his word, just be yourself. Be you. Make yourself the measure of what is good and acceptable. Give yourself an unconditional positive self-regard. The only role that God has to play in this relativism is to be the divine endorsement of your own self-affirmation. So then God functions as a kind of booster for the absoluteness of self. If he presents himself as one with standards or commandments, then he's part of the problem, not the solution. But fortunately, Peter doesn't do this. He doesn't give them a relative hope that might change. He gives them an absolute assurance. God isn't there, listen, to just assist you on your path so that you can keep being you. Peter's instructing the crowd that being themselves is what is leading to destruction. And the message so pierced, so convicted their hearts that they had to do something about it. It was them who killed Jesus by putting Him on the cross. And what we need is the same thing that that crowd needed that day, God's forgiveness, God's amazing grace. You know, what we've been witnessing over the past several weeks is the coming alive of the church. We are seeing the Spirit transforming individuals. We're seeing the power of the Spirit In Acts, but also the power of the gospel. You know, what led to this great harvest of souls was conviction, but it was also a decision because conviction alone is not enough. Because I dare say there have been many times where I've preached a message that has been utterly convicting, and many of you did nothing about it. So there comes a point in every person's life where we must make a decision. The most important decision you must make is not who you're going to marry, what house you're going to live in. The most important decision you must make is, is Jesus Christ your Savior? And if you have made that decision, I pray that you have today. But if you've made that decision, then every other decision follows Am I serving God? Am I living for God? Am I pleasing God? Am I glorifying God? Am I advancing His kingdom and not my own? Am I more about His agenda and not my own? Am I obedient? Am I being a good steward of Jesus Christ? every other decision that follows the decision of salvation should point us back to our Savior. You know, you think about conviction in the Bible. When Jesus spoke to Saul or later Paul on the road to Damascus, he basically said, hey, how long are you going to kick against the pricks? How long are you going to kick against this conviction? I think of Stephen to the Sanhedrin when he preached and he said, how long resist ye the Holy Ghost? Listen to me. This little game that many people are playing of I go to church and then we show up completely unmoved with no real desire to submit our lives to Jesus. Repeatedly hearing the gospel and doing nothing with it is literally taking steps towards the ongoing of the hardening of our hearts towards the things of God. And it's a foolish game that we play. God will not be mocked, church. You can't play games with God. You can't be deceived. You can't trick anyone. You can trick your spouse. You can trick your kids. You can trick your friends. You can't trick God. You can't deceive God. He knows the real you. And if you've ever been under conviction or you ever will be under conviction, then I'm challenging you and urging you and pleading with you to do something about it. Remember, repentance is that change in mind which leads to a change in action. Again, I've pushed away conviction. You've pushed away conviction. What we see from the crowd that day is the majority did not push away, did they? They realized it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was their sin that crucified him. And they moved towards what it was driving them to and embraced it. And listen to this, the key truth. And I'll close this morning. Biblical conviction, no matter how it makes us feel, is always pushing us towards Jesus Christ. Biblical conviction, no matter how it makes us feel, is always pushing us towards Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you never trusted Jesus as your Savior, or if you're watching online, my plea, my call is to get saved, to trust Jesus. To repent of your sins. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my failures. Save me. And he will. It's something you can do in your seat. It's something you can do in your home. It's something you can do anywhere. But if you have made that decision and you've been convicted of your sin, then what is is keeping you from making the decision to live for God, to serve God? To allow the Holy Spirit to empower you. Conviction isn't pushing us away from God, it's pushing us towards Christ. And the goal of the Christian life is to be made into the image of the Son, right? To be made more like Jesus Christ. So I'm urging you as a church to allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we hear a message, whether Sunday morning or Wednesday night or through our devotions, to push us closer to Him, it's decision time. It's time we come alive. It's time that we allow the Spirit to truly empower us and ignite us. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, we'll see marks of true, authentic, biblical Christians and true, authentic churches.